So we've been journeying through the book of Exodus, and we've uh, slowed down here at the Exodus story of the Passover. And we've drawn all these parallels to the gospel, to Jesus as the fulfillment of being the Passover lamb. God is intention from the very beginning. And there's uh, no doubt there's a reason that as you move out of the Exodus story to the rest of the scriptures, that you find this story being referenced more than any other story in scripture, maybe only equal to that would be the creation narrative. This is a prime foundational understanding of God's intention throughout the rest of scripture. So there are so many foreshadowings here. There's so many allusions to what God intends to do. And so we see it with the people of God. We see it in this story. And so we've highlighted that. We talked about what literally happened historically with the people of Israel. But we also talk about how this is pointing towards something different. Of course, we go back and look at how the New Testament authors use some of the same terminology or paint some of the same pictures and and how they're using this to build our understanding of what Jesus came to do, of who he was, of what salvation is for us. Uh, You could actually take the book of Exodus and you could build a solid view and understanding of salvation just from this one book. For instance, one thing we understand about salvation is that there's sin and judgment. Sin is committed. Judgment is what happens when sin is committed. In other words, every time there is a sin, God has to judge that sin. We see both of those here in the story of the Exodus. Uh, We see the idea of election. You know, God's people were chosen by God. Why? Not because they were better than anybody else, not because they were more special, just because God chose them. And so it's nothing about the people, it's about who God is. And we see that emphasis as well. It also teaches us about the idea of substitutionary atonement. What we mean is that Passover lamb became the substitute for that family or for the firstborn of that family. When the blood of that lamb was applied to the door, the death angel passes over that house. There was a substitute. When the death angel came to deliver death and saw the blood smeared on the doorposts of the house, the death angel sees that death has already visited this house and therefore passes over. That's the idea of substitutionary atonement. It teaches us about the communion of saints. You know, when we come together as a church and we celebrate the Lord's Supper and we come together and we remind ourselves of what Jesus did, uh, of the new covenant that we have in Jesus, that is something that is exclusive for only those who are followers of Jesus. It's not for the world. It's not for visitors that day. It's only for those who have given themselves in totality to Christ. Well, the beautiful picture is we see that foreshadowed with the Exodus. God establishes this meal, this Passover meal, this Seder, and every year they come together and they exclusively come together. Only those who are a part of this, only those who are called out, and they celebrate this to remind themselves of what God has done in the past. Uh, Another strong pillar of salvation is introduced in chapter 13, which is our text for today, and that is this idea of redemption. Now, redemption is a word that we're probably very familiar with. We use it all the time, but I wonder if some of us may not understand the little nuances of redemption. Um, Redemption is not just salvation. Redemption carries this attitude of 
having a price paid. So when you redeem a coupon or you redeem something, you exchange, there's an exchange that takes place. Um, at the Passover meal, I don't know if, how many of y'all have ever participated in a Passover Seder, but there comes this point in the Seder where uh, they all go look for the afikoman that's been wrapped in the napkin and hidden away by the father. And then the children all go look for it. And when the child that finds it brings it back to the father, the word there is he redeems it. In other words, he gives some money to the child who found that and he brings it back and the child gets the money. There's a redemption that takes place there. Redemption carries with it the connotation of cost, a cost that's been paid. And so we see that here as well. We see it in, in a lot of fantastic ways. Now, let's situate ourselves contextually of where we are in the story of Exodus. The 10th plague has already happened. The death of the firstborn has taken place in Egypt. And God has spared the Israelites of the death visiting the houses of Israel because they applied the blood of the Passover lamb to the door. Now the Egyptians have told them, leave whatever it takes to leave. Here's our gold. Here's our jewelry. If y'all stay any longer, we'll all be dead. Get out of here. Please leave. And so now they've begun that process of leaving. Next week, we'll talk about that actual exodus as they begin to depart away from Egypt. We've talked about the significance of Passover, of unleavened bread. And now we come to the third feast of the Jewish celebration calendar, and that is the feast of first fruits. So you're going to see how all this ties together this morning as we look at our passage. Before we jump into the passage itself, I want to remind ourselves of something that Paul highlights whenever you begin to visit the uh, book of Ephesians. I don't know how many of you have ever done a study of the book of Ephesians, but uh, Paul just masterfully puts together such strong pictures of what is ours in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul, if you remember the book of Ephesians, he spends three chapters talking about who you are in Christ. Three chapters, all he does is talk about your new identity and how you came to that new identity. And then the last three chapters, he talks about way, the way you should live or what you should do because you have this new identity. And that is very much Pauline writing right there. Why? Because he never says you should do this or you should do that because he's not about behavior modification. Paul is about transformation and transformation begins with identity understanding who you are. So every time Paul begins to present these things in his letters, you'll find Paul saying, this is who you are. Remember what God did for you. Remember how he called you. And in the book of Ephesians, you have this incredible piece of literature where Paul in chapter one, beginning roughly in verse three, I think all the way down to verse 15, he writes one sentence. That's right. Verse three to verse 15 in the original text is one sentence. Now that is horrible English and horrible grammar, but it's incredible truth because what Paul does is he says, in Christ, this is what you have. And so you see this refrain that keeps getting repeated. In him, we have this. In him, we have that. In him, this is ours. In him, we have procured this. In, in him, this. In him, this. In him, every spiritual blessing is afforded us in Christ Jesus. And so he spends all that time saying, this is what has been given to you through your relationship with Jesus Christ. This should be the way you see yourself. You understand yourself the way you understand your value, your identity. And then Paul in the last three chapters after building this says, now here's what you should be doing 
if you really believe this is who you are. And that is important for us to understand as these people leave out of Egypt. I mean, they've been slaves for 430 years. There's a lot of identity problems that they have. There's a lot of of, of self-value issues that they're dealing with. I mean, up to this point for the last 430 years, their value is determined by how many bricks they could produce. And now as they exit out of Egypt, as we've said before, God begins the process of taking Egypt out of them. And so that's a, that's a picture of justification and sanctification, right? Justification happens instantly. We are saved from the world. But, ju- but sanctification begins this long process of taking the world out of us because we've been impacted by the culture that we've lived in. And so as we follow Christ and as we study scriptures, God begins to replace those things that we used to think of ourselves, the way we used to value ourselves, the way we used to find our identity, and he replaces it with things that are holy and true and good. And ultimately, that's what this passage reflects on. The same truth that Paul talks about in Ephesians is established here in Exodus. Now, when you get to this idea of the firstborn and God's going to tell them, hey, what I want you to do is every time you have a firstborn, whatever it is, cow, goat, sheep, or person, I want you to know that the firstborn belongs to me. The firstborn of everything. It doesn't matter, animal or human, the firstborn belongs to me. Now, that exclusively, devoid of everything that we've understood so far, probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But when you put it in the context of the full story of the Exodus, it does make sense. Go all the way back to Exodus chapter 4, and you see really the first mention of this idea of firstborn here. Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my, what does it say? Firstborn son. There's the establishment. He's confronting Pharaoh and he's saying, listen, I have a problem with you and you're about to change the way you've been living, the way you've been thinking about this because you think Israel belongs to you, but Israel is my firstborn son. That's what God establishes right there. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. So in other words, let Israel go so that Israel may serve me. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but there's a lot of rich understanding there that could benefit us. Namely, that when God saves you, he doesn't just save you to get you out of Egypt. He saves you to give give you a purpose in serving him. So it's not just about salvation, but it's also about putting purpose back into our lives. That takes us back to the garden. In the garden, God created Adam. He didn't create him as a sovereign king over all of his creation. He didn't create uh, everything that is and put Adam in the garden and say, all right, it's all yours, do whatever you want. No, Adam was what we call a vassal king. In other words, he was a king under a sovereign king. He was there to image God in the way that he took care of God's creation. And so as he would take care of the creation, he should be constantly thinking about how do I image God? How do I relate his character in everything that he's called me to do? That's what Adam's intention was. However, he buys the lie. He buys the lie that you can find your identity somewhere else. You can find your identity outside of God. And when you do that, you can actually become equal with God. You can know things that God knows. Adam and Eve both buy into this. And this is what brings death into the story. This is what brings rebellion into the story. And this is what brings the need for redemption 
and sacrifice back into the story, okay? So when you understand what man was first created for, you understand what God is trying to redeem, what he's trying to give back to us. Now, when you see things like God wants to rescue Israel so that they may serve me, now in our individualistic American culture, sometimes our minds go to, well, I mean, that's kind of arrogant of God, isn't it? Saying, oh, I'm gonna take you away from being slaves over here so that you can come over here and just worship me. But I wanna remind you, that if you back up for a moment and really think about if God really is God, he doesn't need our worship. I mean, if he's fully self-sustained, he doesn't need people to worship him for him to feel better about himself. So that brings us to this very strong, important point that we always have to put at the front of everything that we talk about when it comes to understanding God or ourselves, and that is this. When God initiates a relationship with you and I, it's for our benefit, not for his. God doesn't benefit from a relationship with us other than he enjoys seeing you reach the potential that you were created for. God doesn't need us to worship him. God doesn't need us to serve him. He's not deficient in anything that he was like, if I could just get 10 more people to serve me, then I could have my nice little mansion over here on the river. But you know what? I got to get some more of these people to follow me. God's not short of anything. He doesn't need us to serve him for his benefit. We benefit when we serve him. Why? Because we understand our constitution. In other words, we understand what we were created for in the very beginning. Now, the world spends their whole pot of money and advertising trying to convince you that your purpose and your value and your identity can be found outside of God, that it can be found in the things that you produce, the things that you can gain, whether it's academics or whether it's athletics or whether it's you know business success or whether it's good looks, whatever it may be, the world keeps saying, if you chase after these things, then you can use these things to become who you are intended to be. And we know when we chase those things, those things always leave us empty. Why? Because we weren't created to be fulfilled in that way. We were created to be fulfilled in a relationship with God. This passage brings us back to that truth. The reminder that we have here is that everything belongs to God. Make note of that. It's not just Israel that belongs to God. What God establishes with Pharaoh is the firstborn of Egypt belongs to me as well. Now, look how it continues, or how it starts off there in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and of beast, is mine. So everything. Now, notice there he doesn't say just the people, but it's also the animals. Everything that you have, everything that you've been given, everything that is under your stewardship, whenever it produces one more, whatever the first thing is that it produces, that is mine. Now, here's what you have to understand about this. This is so crucial because as you carry this over into other patterns of your life, you will mess up your understanding of this if you miss this truth. This does not mean that the firstborn belongs to God and everything after that belongs to the parents. It doesn't mean that when you give your tithe to the Lord, that first 10% of what you make belongs to the Lord and the other 90% belongs to you. No, the understanding, the theology of this is as I give the first fruits, as I give the firstborn, 
It is a reminder to me that everything belongs to the Lord. I dedicate this as a reminder that everything that follows, everything is his. And I establish that from the very beginning because if I don't establish it at the beginning, I will never come back to it. Why? Because I've already, my heart has already started chasing after other things and other ways to fulfill my passions, my desires, and my identity. The first fruits is not about what belongs to God and what belongs to us. The first fruits and the firstborn is about understanding who God is and understanding who we are. Now, skip down to verse 15. And what you're going to see is this emphasis on Israel's firstborn. Look at what it says. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Does that sound familiar? He says to them, I want you to dedicate the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals belong to me. What did he do in Egypt? He killed the firstborn of man and he killed the firstborn of the animals. Why? The picture there is because everything belongs to God. Everything, even Egypt. It wasn't just Israel, also Egypt. And look how it continues. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons, I, what's the next word? Now we see a separation. So when you see something being treated differently, you pay attention to it. Up to this point, it says everything belongs to the Lord. Doesn't matter if it's firstborn of a man. Doesn't matter if it's a firstborn of an animal. It all belongs to the Lord. It's all holy. It's all consecrated. It all has to be set apart. It all has to be given to him. And now all of a sudden when he comes back, he says, now the animals, they become sacrifices. So the first animal that comes out, the first sheep, the first goat, that is a sacrifice unto the Lord. So you get into the sacrificial system that you find in the beginning of the book of Leviticus. And certain sacrifices were related to certain... uh, ideas of either forgiveness or extending forgiveness or receiving forgiveness or peace offerings. There's all kinds of offerings that are there associated with sacrifice. But he does distinguish here that as you would sacrifice the first animal, you do not sacrifice the first human. Now, I don't think that's a shock to any of us, but it does remind us of the story of Abraham, doesn't it? I mean, if you think about the first human and you remember God testing Abraham and his faith and he said, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, the one whom you love, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. Now, the, the words that are used there are very um, poignant because they remind us of something that's said later on about Jesus. Now, the one thing that we know about Abraham is that Isaac wasn't his first son. He had another son named Ishmael. But at this point, when God says this, Ishmael's already been sent away because God said, Ishmael is not the promised child. He's not from the seed of the marriage that I've brought together here. I've got something else planned for you. And now Ishmael's gone. Isaac is the only one. He says, I want you to take this son, your only son, the one whom you love. Now, when you get to the New Testament, the Gospels, when when God introduces his son, when he's baptized by John the Baptist, this is my beloved son, my only son. This is the son whom I love. You see that same imagery there. So again, you have to pay attention to the words that are used here because they are illusions pointing us to the bigger story of the gospel. 
Now, when we come to this passage right here, and we hear this idea of the firstborn of man and beast, and they belong to God, this idea of sacrifice of the animal, but not the sacrifice of the human. When Abraham's story unfolds, one thing that he is willing to do is he's willing to go through with a sacrifice. However, God stops him and he says, I see that you were not willing to withhold anything from me. And I am going to extend to you the fulfillment of all the promises that I've made. You did not hold back from me your son, your only son, the one whom you love. Now, the beauty is, as you get into the gospel, God does not withhold his hand. Jesus does become the sacrifice, his son, his only son, the son whom he loved. So again, you see these pictures early on that are pointing to this greater picture that's going to happen later. Now, in our story in Exodus, the firstborn, again, as we reiterate, is not more special than the others that come later. It is a dedication or a representation of all the births that would follow later. In our story, we know that God was angry at Pharaoh. His anger was kindled towards Pharaoh because... Remember early on in the story, Pharaoh attempted to uh, thwart the growth population of the Israelites by having the boys killed, by having the baby boys thrown into the Nile. I think about how many firstborn boys were probably thrown into the Nile, wasted. Why? Because Pharaoh thought he was God. He thought they belonged to him. They exist for his pleasure and his power and his glory. And God steps into this with his anger kindled to say, I'm going to show you who is really in control and owns all things. And that's how the story begins. Now look at how it continues here in chapter 13, verse uh, 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are male shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Now, if you notice the first part of that, verses 11 and verse 12 seem very repetitious. What we've already talked about, we've already alluded to it. We see it repeated there in verse 15 as well. But then all of a sudden, he says something that if you're paying attention, it, it throws you off a little bit. And it's because he specifically mentions a donkey. Okay? Now, of all the animals that you could mention, he mentions this donkey. Why a donkey? Well, the one thing that you know is that as God brings them into the wilderness and he gives them the law, he begins to distinguish which animals are clean and which animals are unclean. Right? And the donkeys are unclean animals. Now, he mentions them here, and if you look at the wording, well, follow me through this again. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. There's that word redeem again. So somehow the lamb becomes a substitute for the donkey. Why? The donkey cannot be used in any kind of sacrifice because the donkey's unclean. God doesn't accept unclean sacrifices, okay? But how is the donkey to be redeemed? Well, you can redeem it one of two ways. If you choose not to give a substitute to the donkey through a lamb, then you break the donkey's neck and you kill it. Why? Because it can't be a sacrifice. So you break the neck and you kill that animal. Why? Because it can't be used in service because it's unclean. 
has to be redeemed. Okay, now that's somewhat understandable, but here's the next part that is kind of a kicker. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Now, this is not just a list that's going on. I want you to pay attention that here, as God is speaking this to Moses, he has made a correlation with a donkey and the sons of man. Okay? Now, I'm not to say that y'all are all a bunch of, you know, how you finish that out. Not, that's not what I was saying there. But it is saying this. What is a donkey used for? It's a service animal. It's an animal that works. It works for who? It works for the pleasure of the one that owns it, right? I mean, it tills the ground, it pulls the haul, pulls the wagon, whatever it may be. That's what donkeys do. They're somewhat stubborn, but they're strong, and that's what they do. They serve. But they're unclean at the same time, so they can't make a sacrifice. They can't become a sacrifice. They can't be set apart as holy. Now, immediately, he follows that up with the firstborn of man. The correlation there is this. Humans cannot save themselves. Humans are unclean and unworthy to be a sacrifice. Therefore, just as a donkey has to be redeemed in one way or the other, either through death or through a substitute, the only way for the Son of Man to be redeemed is either through his own death or through a substitute. That's the only two ways or endings that a human can find. Do you see this? Now, I know that you don't like being compared to a donkey, neither do I, but you see the metaphor that's being created here. There is a need for those that are unclean to have a worthy sacrifice that is clean so that they can be redeemed. And there is a price that has to be paid. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. When you take all of that together and you see how this story is unfolding, you can't help but see the allusions to the gospel. How can this animal be, be used in service? It first has to be redeemed. How can this son be used in the service of the Lord? Has to be redeemed. Okay? How is something redeemed? There has to be a price that's paid. So just as the donkey is redeemed by a replacement lamb, so too is the son redeemed by a replacement lamb. And that's where we come to the idea of a substitutionary atonement or a substitutionary sacrifice. Now, if you get into the New Testament, you see this theology unfold even more where Jesus is called the substitute for us or the, the benefit or how he redeems us. Titus 2.14, uh, Jesus is the one who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for what? What does it say? Good works. So God redeems by providing a substitutionary sacrifice to make you holy so that you can produce good works. Do you see it's the same exact thing that we see here back in Exodus chapter 13. Now, when we refer to Jesus as a redeemer, we're in essence acknowledging that he is the one who took our place. When we say Jesus is my redeemer, we're saying, I believe that Jesus took my place, that he paid the penalty of my sin, that he died the death that should have been mine. Now, it isn't until you get to the book of Numbers, though, that there's actually a monetary price given to this idea of redemption, especially the redemption of the firstborn. Numbers chapter 18, or yeah, chapter 18, verse 14. 
Every devoted thing in Israel shall be yours. Everything that opens the womb of all flesh, whether man or beast, which they offer to the Lord shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall redeem, and the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem, and their redemption price at a month old you shall redeem them. You shall fix at five shekels in silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is 20 giras. Okay. So that's the first time we have an actual monetary amount attached to this idea of redemption, and it's five shekels. Now, why do I point that out to you? Well, I want to point it out to you because it makes sense of some of the things that you find in the gospel later. Uh, for instance, if you go to Luke chapter 2, this is after Jesus is born and, and Mary and uh, her husband Joseph are making a trip back to Jerusalem and they go to the tabernacle. And it says there in verse 22, and when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, meaning Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Now, I want you to pay attention because Luke, as he's writing the story of Jesus, goes back and quotes from Exodus chapter 13. And he says the reason Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple is because they are dedicating him to the Lord. They are doing what the law of Moses requires. They were probably paying the five shekels of silver, and they are dedicating their firstborn. Jesus is the firstborn. He's the one that came through the womb or opened the womb. So they are following this tradition that was set all the way back when the Israelites first came out of Egypt. Now, again, direct quote, so you've got to think about the story behind that. Jesus was dedicated to the work of the Father from the very beginning. How or why? Because Jesus was the firstborn, and Jesus is the firstborn, and the firstborn is set aside for the glory or for the work of the Father. Now, Jesus, we see throughout his entire life, gave his life in totality for the glory of God. He, he gives himself completely to the work of the Father. Matter of fact, Jesus says at various times, he says, you know what, if you want to know what the Father's doing, just look at what I'm doing, because I only do what I see the Father doing. Complete submission, and the works are to reflect the glory of the Father. When Jesus gets towards the cross, he's praying in the garden. He says, um, if there's any way this cup can be removed from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Why? Because I exist for your glory, not for mine. I exist to accomplish your demands, not mine. Now, this is why this process is so important for us to understand in the church. The reason is, when we go through what we call a, a child dedication. Now, some denominations have a baptism of the child. You know, where they sprinkle water, pour water over the head. We don't participate in that, pay baptism. We do what we call a family commitment time or a child dedication. Y'all have all, probably all seen this in various churches that you've gone to. And it's where we bring the couples up front and they have this baby. Now, sometimes this can become just like a little, little show. Like, oh, look at my precious little baby. My baby's cuter than that baby over there. And they just sit there and they rock them. And hey, grandma, hey, grandpa. And this picture opportunity. And sometimes it can become that. But I want you to understand at the heart of why we do that finds itself right here in the scripture. 
that, that we have this responsibility of understanding that number one, the firstborn belongs to the Lord and the firstborn also represents all that follows. So all of it is dedicated to the kingdom work. But if you ever pay attention, what we do when we bring these children up here is we ask the parents to make a commitment to the child that they are going to sacrifice their own wishes and desires for the betterment of that child, to give them an opportunity to understand the kingdom of God and the principles of that, and also to understand what it means to be saved and and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. They're going to exemplify that in the way that they walk and the way that they discipline that child. But then we also bring the church into it and we say, hey, these people are around the table of fellowship with us. They are, they are a part. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. So these children are not just their responsibility. They're our responsibility. Are y'all willing to step up and do what it takes to raise these children in a godly manner so that they are pointed in the right direction, so they understand where their value and their identity really comes from? And the church has to respond to that as well. It finds the heart of what we're doing or what we're trying to accomplish right here in this scripture that these children are not ours. They belong to God. These children are not for our glory. They're for his. And, And I really believe that one of the worst things that we can do as parents is try to remake our kids in our own image. Now, I know that no one would ever say that that's what they're attempting to do, but I see it all the time. I see it in sports. I see dads out there just hammering their signs, you know, you got to do this and you got to dedicate yourself more and you got to be this. And you, there's nothing wrong with instruction. There's nothing wrong with encouragement, but there comes a point where you've crossed the line where you're drilling into that kid. Your identity is found and how successful you're going to be. And maybe it's not sports. Maybe it's academics. And they just beat their kids mercilessly on the fact that they didn't make an A. You made a B. Is that the best that you can do? Now, again, there's nothing wrong with encouragement and pushing people to their full potential. But there is a line that's crossed when we begin to say to that child, your value, your identity comes from what you produce on an athletic field or what you produce in the classroom or even businesses when it comes to what you produce on your sales chart or whatever it may be. Now, all of a sudden, we are remaking them in our image and not in the image of God. The image of God says none of that stuff creates your worth or your value or your identity. Your worth and your value and your identity are rooted in your relationship with God. Therefore, as you go and do these things and express yourself in these ways, you are free to be the very best that you can be because your identity isn't caught up in it. You see that? Um, when children exist for our benefit, we are really no different than Pharaoh. They exist for our pleasure and they exist for our glory and they exist to represent us. Scripture teaches us that the children are not ours. They belong to the Lord. They are for his glory They are for his name to be made great. And thus, that's what we have to dedicate that first one for, or we will forget very quickly. Now, Exodus uh, chapter 13 continues with this idea. Look at verse 14. And when in time, uh, and when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? In other words, why are you dedicating me? Why are you committing me? Why are you paying this money uh, at the temple? Uh, You shall say to him, 
By a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Do you see the idea of memory and remembering? Keep this ever before you because the temptation of the world is going to be to pull you away from this. You see, often kids try to break that yoke that parents put on you. Let's say we make that first mistake and the parents are so hard on their kids and they're like, you've got to be successful and you've got to, you know, make sure that you're making great grades because you've got to get into this school and get into this school so you can get this kind of job so that you can have this kind of family and you can do better for your kids and I can do for you and blah, blah, blah. And we put that yoke on them. And then what happens a lot of times is the kids rebel against that and they run away from it. And rightly so, but the tragedy is they run to the other end of that spectrum, which is I'm not going to live for the glory of my parents. I'm going to live for my own glory. And they run to this life of basically the prodigal son. I'm going to find pleasure the way I want to find it. I'm going to find my identity the way I want it. I'm going to do what seems right to me in my own eyes. And so literally the balance there is where we find what God calls us to. Neither living for the glory of our parents and not living for the glory of ourselves, but living for the glory of the one who created us, who redeemed us, who bought us with a price so that we are not our own. And he has every good intention towards us. He doesn't benefit from the relationship. We do. Why? Because we understand why we were created and we understand our full potential and we understand things that God can do through us that we could never do on our own. And we miss that if we miss this calling, this purpose, this commitment. So here's a question for you. How do you use yourself? How do you use your time? How do you use the talents that God's given to you? What about the sphere of influence that you have? How do you use that? Do you use it to please your parents? Do you use it to build your own kingdom? Or do you use it dedicated to the glory of God? That's an easy question to ask, but it's a hard one to be transparent and honest about. I've often said this. If you want to know what you're dedicated to, there's only two things you have to look at. Look at your checkbook and look at your calendar. Because what you believe in, you find time for and you spend your money on. Now, you can tell me to you're blue in the face. I love Jesus. I'm committed to the gospel. I'm, but show me, show me in your checkbook how that's true. Show me in your time and your schedule how that's true, how you're dedicating these things to the Lord. And that's really where it, it comes to the reality of what we're actually living for. Now, When it comes to this idea of redemption, we have to remember that as Christ became the sacrifice for us and redeemed us, we are not our own. We are bought with a price. Therefore, the only way to find our true fulfillment is to come under the authority of Christ and to live for something that's bigger than us, to live for a kingdom that's greater than anyone we could build for ourselves, to live for a purpose that will outlast our own lives. That's what we are invited into, and it is a glorious invitation. But so many of us are still living in the spiritual poverty slums of this life. I want to end by telling you a little story, a true story. 
And as I was studying this, I came across this story in one of the commentaries I was reading. Never heard this story before, um, but as I read it, I was intrigued by it. And it um, is about this family who grew up in Lake Wobegon, Minnesota, in the United States. Okay? Now, this is a story about a lady. She was a young Swedish woman. She was very beautiful. She meets this stranger who his last name is Campbell, and he was from Scotland, right? And so she meets him. She's mesmerized by him, complete stranger. They fall in love immediately. They get married, and they run off together. Well, in the early part of their marriage, they immediately had three kids. Now, all of a sudden, this Scotsman got tired of that family life, and ultimately, he ended up abandoning them and leaving. Now, what's interesting about the story is the lady never actually gets to meet the rest of his family. She doesn't know really anything about them, and he never really revealed a whole lot about it. But what happened was she became desperate because she couldn't afford to take care of her family. And when it came to the point that her kids were either going to starve to death or she had to humble herself, she made the decision to go back home to her community in shame because they all warned her about running off with this guy. They all warned her about making these rash decisions. And now she brings not only herself, but these three little mouths that have to be fed. They ended up buying this little bitty shack that they lived in. I mean, it was literally like a humble down kind of shack, and they were completely dependent on the goodness of the community and family members that would still have anything to do with them to eat every day. They went from what she thought was this great dream that she was pursuing to a dead-end, empty reality. But she never let go of that. She always, in her mind, wanted to achieve something more, but she never saw the opportunity to do it. In the day and the time that she lived in, women just didn't see the opportunity to, to make that much money. Then all of a sudden, something very interesting happened. Um, there was this letter that shows up one day, and this letter is inquiring about her and her children, and specifically about her firstborn son. And the letter inquired about who she was, who she was married to, after she answered this in another letter, a following letter comes, and it informs her that they have been looking for her for a while because she is in the direct lineal descendant of the House of Stuart in Scotland, which is the ancient and royal family that rules over Scotland. And that because of her firstborn and the death of the guy that she was eventually married to that she never heard again, her son was the rightful heir to the throne in Scotland. And this man who had been looking for her and writing these letters and corresponding, the last letter she got before she actually got to go to Scotland and fulfill these things was this. And I'm going to read this verbatim, the letter that she got. It was entitled or addressed to your royal highness. Discovering you and your family has been the happiest accomplishment of my life. And if God and his infinite wisdom should deny me the opportunity to meet you face to face on this earth, I should still count myself the luckiest of men for this chance, however small, to restore Scotland to her former greatness. Please know that you are in my thoughts and prayers every day and that I will go, uh, that I will work in every, work with every ounce of my being to restore you from your sad exile to the lands, the goods, and the reverence to which you, by the will of God, are entitled. 
Now, I want you to think about that for a moment because this guy writing is writing to a lady, he probably doesn't even know this, who lives in a tumble-down shack who has been dependent on the goodness of people around her to feed her and her children. And all of a sudden, we have royalty discovered. Now, if that sounds very inspiring to you, the reason is it's your story as well, in case you didn't realize it. If you are a follower of Jesus, we should be drawn to stories like this because we also received a message from a faraway place saying, that we are not where we were supposed to be, that we are something that we didn't realize that we are, and that we had a rightful place, a rightful claim to a throne in another land. We also get a letter from someone who says, I pray for you daily and nightly, and I count it one of the greatest joys to have found you and to brought you into this, and I'm gonna work tirelessly until you achieve what you are destined for. It's our story. It's the reason the writer of Hebrews says, you are a royal priesthood. Are you living in the reality that scripture has painted for you? Do you believe it to be true? If so, how are you spending the most valuable assets that God has given to you? Namely, your time, your talents, your resources. Are you spending them and using them from a perspective of who you are? Or are you spending them and using them from the perspective of, I'm just a tumble down person and I've got to build something to give myself credibility and to give myself worth? Let me tell you something. That is a sad, miserable life that has a depressing ending. But the one that we are called to the one that is a picture of redemption, is a picture of Jesus calling us out of our wasteland into royalty. Not so that we can boast and be proud of what we've accomplished, but so that we can relish in the fact that God has found us and called us and chosen us and brought us in. This is the story of the gospel. This is our story. Why? Why are we not more passionate about it? Not only in ourselves, why are we not more passionate about sharing it with the community around us? It's like we're content to just come in, study these things, and go, ah, that's really neat, and go back to our own kingdom building. I want to challenge you today to think about this in a way that you've never thought about before, that the scripture starts off painting you as equal to a donkey, but yet in the same way says, I don't want to leave you unclean. I want to make you a royal priesthood. And it's going to happen because I'm going to redeem you and pay a price for you so that you can achieve and be something that you can never be on your own. That's the invitation to all of us. In the day that we live in, it's very easy to be distracted by the politics, by the healthcare, by all the things that are going on that divide us. What should unite us? is the truth and the foundation of this gospel. Let's pray together. As you just bow your heads for a moment, I just want you to reflect on what we taught this morning, what the scripture says. Do you really believe this? And how does this belief translate to the way you pray, to the way you relate to others, to the way you think and act? Let's think specifically about the time that we live in 
with a pandemic that's worldwide, that's devastating not only people's lives, but the economy that we live in. How does being a royal priesthood relate to the way we live and act? I bring you back to the way the Apostle Paul starts the book of Ephesians. In him, we are this. In him, we are that. In him, this is ours. In him, this is ours. I want to bring you back to asking you this. Have you ever realized your true identity? And if so, has that translated to the way you live? As Jack mentioned, in this uh, time of pandemic, one of the practical ways that we can do this is to see ourselves in an identity of Christ by faith alone through the sacrifice of Christ and his glorious resurrection alone as being justified, sanctified, and one day, theologians call, glorified, that we would be freed from the penalty of sin, free from the, from the presence of sin for all eternity. And as we're going through a pandemic right now, and so many people in our community are suffering from it, uh, we look forward to the day where being adopted into the family of God means also participating and living in a very real kingdom in which Christ makes all things new. So we thought it would be appropriate in a practical way to apply what we're listening to or we're hearing today, learning from the Word, uh, would be to, to pray over our community of our nation, specifically over those suffering uh, from COVID in our church. So if you would please uh, spend this extra time with me um, in prayer. There's so many things that our father, Adam, uh, could not have envisioned when he, Father, rejected your way of life and plotted his own course. An invitation that the Apostle Paul said invited sin and death into this world, into a very good creation. To Adam and to us, you said, thy will be done. And since then, the whole of creation has grown together as a result. We were waiting for your son's merciful and gracious redemption, a work that makes all things new. Our community, Lord, has been ravished by the disease in, of recent weeks in ways that we thought were not possible just months ago. And this disease is one that not only threatens the physical health, but also the health of our relationships. Each day we are reminded that there is a cacophony of argument about treating and preventing the disease that it sometimes seems that it is deeper and farther spread in our disagreement than the disease itself. So we confess that we are tempted and prone, and prone to join a divisive world, to judge and to oppose those with whom we disagree, but we recognize that your gospel advocates for a better in a higher way. It tells us to love our neighbor selflessly, to attend to our body as if it were your own holy temple, and to glorify you through the unity of the saints. So Father, we want to be a church who, as the Apostle Paul urged us, walks in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Lord, lead us not into the temptation of division. Give us wisdom as to how to best curb this terrible effect of the fall and give us resolve to love our neighbors as ourselves, especially when we disagree. 
Moreover, Father, we thank you for our healthcare system, as stressed as it is. We thank you for all the tools that you have equipped us to prevent and fight and heal disease. Let us use them all wisely and well, out of respect for your holy temples, which are our bodies, and out of selfless and humble love of our neighbor. More importantly, we thank you for the healthcare workers that are currently battling this disease. We thank you for the great gifts that are our doctors and our nurses, especially those who selflessly care and treat us as ours blur into days. In the end, we know that heaven heals by its power through humans and not hardware for people who care for us. So keep our healthcare professionals safe. Give them rest, especially the over 20 that serve from this campus in our local community. And most importantly, Lord, we heed James's words. Is any among you sick? Then have the elders, have the church pray over them. And so we do so this morning specifically for members of our church, Mars Hill, the church that you give us to call home. We pray for the young woman who is right now suffering through COVID-related pneumonia, that you would heal her. We pray for two precious and beloved members who are presently battling COVID separately, one at home who live streams the service and another who is in critical care separated from her husband in the hospital. Heal them. We pray for the young husband whose asthmatic condition is currently endangering his life. Heal him. And we pray for his young wife, a pregnant mother separated from her husband, who just this morning was moved to a ventilator depressed with the news that her baby's condition is nearing terminal. Save the baby and heal her. We pray for the families of this church who just in the last two weeks have lost family members to include two brothers, one father, one mother, and one cousin. Be with those families. And finally, we pray for the loss of one of our own in Fairhope, Frank Bunch, your word reminds us, precious, in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints because he is in your glorious presence now. And to the grieving bunch family, we ask that your spirit of comfort would rest heavy on them, that your will would be done in all of these ways, that we would weep with those who weep. And Father, at times when we have nothing more to say, we know that there's always hope on the horizon, that with the return of your Son comes an everlasting and eternal defeat of Satan's sin and death and the diseases that cause it. So Lord, come quickly. Amen.